Welcome to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI-FM. We're broadcasting from the University of California Irvine campus and we're streaming live at KUCI.org. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett and today my guest is Dan Dooling. Scriptwriter Dan Dooling earned his PhD in drama from the University of Texas, Austin. His plays have been produced throughout the U.S. and honored with a number of awards, including the Oregon Playwrights Award. His recent plays include Only You, Monstrosity, and Tesla, Radio Play for the Stage, originally showcased at Laguna Playhouse in 2017 and now slated for production at the Pasadena Playhouse. Dan is also a former journalist, having written for publications such as the LA Weekly, Los Angeles Times, and Los Angeles Herald Examiner. His writing for media has included work for Oregon Public Broadcasting, Nickelodeon, MTV, and Comedy Central. Last Lives, a feature based on a screenplay, originally premiered on the Sci-Fi Channel. Currently, he's working on a fact-based multi-part series set on the Mexican border. He's the scriptwriter for Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach. Welcome back, Dan. Thank you, Barbara. It's really great to be here. Now, I was trying to figure this out. How long have you been writing the script for the pageant? Last year was supposed to be my 40th pageant. It was canceled by COVID. So this year is my 40th pageant. Well, that's a good gig. (laughs) That's a a good gig. And it's something I would have never imagined when I originally got a call out of the blue from the director at that time in 1981. And it began really as a... Uh, side hustle um, curiosity, and it became something that I became more and more passionate about. And 25 years ago, when Diane Chalice Davy became the director of the pageant, uh, I found the kind of collaboration every playwright dreams about, which is working with a director who has the same goals in terms of theatricality and audience entertainment, and uh, also just a very shared sensibility about what we hoped we could encourage the pageant to become and the audience we hoped we could attract to the show as it grew into the 21st century. And I like to feel that we have made some headway. Uh, I see a much more diverse audience in the uh, Irvine Bowl at nights now, and I am thrilled to see families with their children and a much broader demographic. And we are trying to create shows that say, you are all welcome here. We're all going to have a good time. And our love of art is something we hope you will take home with you. So, so Dan, for people who have no idea what Pageant of the Masters is. <laughs> the $64 <laughs> question. Yeah, talk a little bit about what it is and how it came about. It's based on a footnote in theater history called Tableau Vivant, which literally means in French, living pictures. And it began in the medieval times as a kind of entertainment for visiting royalty. It evolved into a way of educating the children of the French court and then into a court entertainment for royals and eventually to becoming the idea for parlor games for the whole family where you would dress up and create a tableau of a living picture of a masterpiece of art or something else or a scene from a a play or a book. And then from there, 
had a rather tawdry side uh, track where it became the opportunity for burlesque house owners to put naked women on the stage, painted and and not moving, and say that is a living picture and that is art. And mm -hmm. as long as those women did not move, the police who were waiting to shut down the enterprise uh, would let them get away with it. And so it's burlesque period um, pretty much ended with the years when movies took over. And uh, uh, in 1932, at the first festival of arts, the idea of doing living pictures was promoted by a vaudevillian who retired to Laguna Beach. And the next year, 33, they did what they called the spirit of the master's pageant which was about as amateurish as you could imagine with friends and neighbors dressing up as famous artworks, parading through the streets, standing in a booth about the size of a phone booth, pulling back the curtain and there is the laughing cavalier or the Mona Lisa. Or, and it was every bit as, as much of a novelty, a gimmick as you can imagine. But the point of the festival was to lure from Los Angeles down from the 1932 Olympics and eventually get people to come and see that this was an art colony with a body of work being put out by artists who would now be considered some of the most famous artists to come out of California. Um, and here in Laguna Beach, the festival was looking for ways to attract attention to it. And in 1935, Roy Ropp, his wife, Marie, was on the festival board. Uh, he and his wife were both equally nonplussed by how amateurish the living pictures were as a part of the novelty entertainment. And they said to the board, if you're going to do this, either do it right or don't do it at all, because this is embarrassing. And they said, Roy and Marie, it's all yours. And in 1935, they created the template for what is essentially still the model for the, the pageant of the masters, which was live narration, live music, and living pictures of artworks presented on a stage, which Roy built and designed the seating area. Marie helped design the costumes. She wrote the script for the narrator. She music that would be performed. And the show was about 45 minutes long. And to jump from there to the next year, 1936 is important because that was the first year where they really wanted to outdo themselves and their finale was the biggest tableau they'd ever done. So they had to build a completely different stage house just to house Last Supper by Leonardo da Vinci. And that finale of the 1936 pageant, a national press, millions of dollars of national press. And within two to three years, Roy and Marie's pageant of the masters was causing the festival to have to add extra days because of the demand for pageant tickets. And it has remained this anomaly, a cart leading the horse sort of thing where a nonprofit devoted to the arts is actually able to sustain itself and even expand its uh, generosity to artists and local uh, arts organizations because of the success of the pageant which has transcended the novel aspect of it become 
a tradition now in its 88th year, which still kind of uh, boggles my mind, but it has every um, decade found ways to make itself more of a show, more of a polished show, more of a professional production, even though at its heart and soul, it has hundreds of volunteers in its casts and working behind the scenes and a key staff of about 17 people. And that said, it is a show which I would not still be doing if it weren't exceeding my expectations of something that is every bit as polished as anything you would see uh, on a Vegas or New York stage or in Los Angeles. And I'm very proud of the pageant. It has become a, obviously a, a major part of my life. I'm thrilled with my collaboration with our director, Diane Callis-Davy. And uh, we are doing our best to outdo ourselves and recover from a missing year, which I will not kid you was very, very disorienting and uh, kind of uh, upsetting. Yeah, yeah. Well, we're going to talk. We're going to talk about that. But what I wanted to talk a little bit about, because I think for people who have never been to the pageant and are not from, say, Orange County or, or you know, specifically Laguna Beach, I think you know the idea of um, paintings um, sort of being brought to life with. Um, human beings is is a pretty i don't know it's kind of esoteric i think or maybe abstract is more i more think absurd is the word that i would <laughs> use because it is a ridiculous conceit and uh, in my years in studying theater history nothing about it would have made me take it seriously mm -hmm. in all honesty it was just um something that that um was an excuse for spectacle for its own sake for the most part and didn't uh, strike me as taking advantage of the things that make theater so important to my life. Uh, but that said, it does have a potential to reveal, and I've said this many times, the humanity within the artist's experience and the experience of the artwork. And as a simple metaphor for the fact that art is a product of the human experience and our imagination, it is another reminder, which when combined with music expressly to bring that artwork to an emotional uh, life and also to have narration that tells a story which draws you into the painting or the sculpture or the artist's life, you have a much richer opportunity for truly engaging emotional storytelling and emotional uh, presentation of the artistic experience. And that's something that I didn't feel when I first came to work here, but now I feel very intensely because I've seen how well it can work. And it's been validated by people who would not sit still if this were not being done with as much effort and love and care and professional polish as the, everybody that I work with uh, ends to it. And uh, that, again, is the community of theater, the extended family of theater that the pageant not only embraces, but 
creates an amazing model for. Have hundreds of volunteers who give up half their summer to be a part of something larger than all of us. It's a very humbling thing. Um, yes, I have a writer's ego. Yes, I have a theater artist's ego. But I'm humbled by their commitment to this show. And I feel a real uh, commitment on my part to make the show, as far as my contribution, worthy of their support, their interest, and their uh, enthusiasm. And um, we do it outdoors at night with hundreds of people and endless amounts of technical cues and sets rolling on and off stage, um, choreographed within an inch of their lives. And what could possibly go wrong? And the answer <laughs> is we spend a year preparing for and anticipating as many of those things as we can. And when it works right, I like to think we create a spell that really takes our audiences to an artistic experience that's uh, worth their time. Yeah. Yeah. And what you just said, you know, it's outside at night. I mean, that, you know, it's, it's like, there's all these different levels to it, right? There's the paintings, there's, there's the music, which is always, I mean, this, this uh, orchestra that you have talk about that, how, how this came about. Well, the, the first pageants that had music, obviously just had either a trio or a quartet or a, uh, something like that. And then small, a smaller version of a band. And then eventually it evolved into what we had up until this last year, which was a large orchestra, union hire orchestra from the uh, Orange County Musicians Union. And um, then a, now we have a group of, of uh, composers who write music, which we work with each of them very closely to make sure that their music blends with our narrator's dem demos, readings of the scripts, which are just for their timing purposes. And they score each piece, mostly with original music written specifically for that artwork. And some of our composers have spoken about how exciting it is to have the basis of their inspiration for the pieces that they're writing be a work of art and perhaps the story of the artist's life and perhaps the story of how that particular artwork made waves in art history. And um, uh, that's, that is a part of the spell cast by the pageant. Uh, and as you point out, we're six blocks from the beach in Laguna Beach, California, a place where no one has any right to expect a show of this caliber and professional execution or sophistication. And yet, how many shows can you say are designed specifically not only for a great date night, but also something you could bring your parents to or your children to and feel fairly confident they would all have a good time. Uh, it's not the audience that I originally started writing plays for, but I see it as very much an obligation with the pageant to really make it feel as inclusive as possible. I'm not writing down anyone. I am writing with a commitment to telling stories accurately, compassionately, and with 
a sense, uh, a modern sensibility at least about how we regard the role of art in our lives. And uh, this year was a great challenge, not only because it was um, uniquely focused on the, the lives of American artists and there were some great stories to tell and I loved the opportunity to tell them, but also because it was a show that we started thinking about and working on during an election year and are now presenting in the wake of a new administration. And we did not want it to be political. It was never intended to be a political show or to be pushing political buttons. Although in this, in this world, everything has the capability of pushing you know, buttons. And um, what I would tell people who have been least bit hesitant about coming to see this year's pageant is, is a massively entertaining show. It has heart, it has a real strong sense of American patriotism, but it is absolutely couched in the historical record and also in the lives of artists whose lives are fascinating. I was curious about about it. It's called Made in America. And um, talk about that. I, I'm curious how, you know, something like this begins, because if you're writing a play until you get to what I imagine is until you get to um, the producer or director, it's pretty much your thing, right? I mean, it's not a collaborative process, whereas this seems that it would be very collaborative. It's and absolutely a different kind of collaboration because we are operating on the assumption as we go into the fall that we will be doing a brand new show the following summer. And we are already committed to doing that show. And uh, uh, with COVID, we are playing catch up. We have uh, not announced a theme for next year. We don't know exactly what the parameters of work will be given the uh, uncertainties uh, about the health environment. But we hope to begin working on it in earnest. And traditionally, the fall is when the director and I start putting things up on the board and arranging them and reorganizing them and creating problems and solving those problems and creating new problems until we come up with a show that we have belief that it has all the variety we need in it. It has a lot of different emotional colors and it has a, a high quotient of entertaining um, elements and effects and surprises and fun. And those are operative words for us. But by the time the show hits the stage next summer, we will have parsed out every second of that show, both in terms of how the music matches up with the narration, how the narration is reinforced by the music, how the visuals are transitioning from one to the next in the shortest amount of time so that we don't have a, a, you know, an empty stage for any real length of time. And just that we go 
and take advantage of the theatrical opportunities that we have as much as possible with the intention of making it a show completely different than the show that you saw the year before. And um, I can say this show this year is completely different from the show you saw last year because you did not see a show. <laughs> so it's had two years to gestate and this is the product of that work uh, compressed into really a big chunk of it into the last two months before we actually had audiences this summer. And that was nerve wracking and stressful. And at the same time, unbelievably gratifying when we saw the, the audience coming back and just clearly happy to be back with the pageant back in production and happy to be here. And that has continued through the run so far. And we hope it will continue through the this year's run and set the stage for us to have a full year to work on, prepare, and then present next year's pageant. Yeah. So so because the pageant didn't ha- didn't happen last year because of COVID, um, what happened to that show? Was this part of what you had planned for last year or what, what happened? So in a large part, we had been working very diligently right up until we were all sent home mid-March. Um, on a version of this show, which is very similar than this show, except that when we came back, we had very limited budgeting and we had very limited time and we had to make some adjustments. Uh, We had to certainly just very in the briefest possible way acknowledge uh, the lost year, but ultimately um, to sort of reframe the show as what we see it is as, as a way of paying tribute to the pageant sustaining a tradition set in motion back in 1933 and one which we have no intention of abandoning. Hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm looking at I'm looking at the lists of artists and I'm curious how you pick them. I, there's a few women artists and, and of course, a lot of women um, who were artists during this time, which was, I don't know, the mid 1800s to, I guess, mostly the early 1900s, although there's 1971, 1980 to 90. I mean, how, how do you pick artists to fulfill the theme? Well, inclusiveness of women artists is a very important thing to both Dee and to me. And by Dee, I mean Diane Ellis Davy. Um, in, in this case, the chance to tell the story of, of Edmonia Lewis, who I think is one of the most remarkable stories in, in women art history. Uh, and I've uh, been happy to tell ver- variations of it over time, but this year I got to tell it in more detail and really celebrate the extraordinary things that she accomplished during her career in the mid 1800s. I also was thrilled to be able to tell the story of uh, Mary Cassatt and her success with her mural at the 1893 uh, Columbian Art Exposition in Chicago. And that was something we had not ever been able to do before. And uh, as Diane is always 
focused on. We want to do new things that we have never tried before in every show. Um, there will be, of course, things that we have done before, but we hopefully are looking at them through a different prism, whether it be history, biography, or in some cases, the uh, culture of the, of the time period in which they were created. And then uh, I also was just thrilled to be able to include um, a photograph by Dorothea Lang in terms of a female artist who I have huge admiration for from the 20th century and whose uh, body of photography is a very important element of uh, American history's uh, record. And, uh, and then um, I also, we were also looking for ways to include as much diversity as possible. So we do have uh, one female artist in um, the piece, The Hot Five by Susan Deisinger. Susan Deisinger is a Laguna artist and, and including her piece in our tribute to the roots of American popular music was exciting just to have her included and then to also be celebrating the uh, body of work of Louis Armstrong. What a, what a chance to touch on uh, several things that I think just bring happiness to our audience. And that whole end of act one sequence, which also includes Duke Ellington and includes um, uh, George Gershwin, it's, it is a, a compendium of familiar classic songs, but we've added some theatrical embellishments. We've certainly done our best to give our orchestra a chance to showcase their talents. And we've also um, add some razzle dazzle and fireworks to the, uh, uh, the experience. And, and we just, Love to see how happy the audience is uh, by the end of Act One, and I don't just mean because it's intermission time. <laughs> yeah, no, we we always love to go to the pageant, as you know. I mean, I it's just a night to look forward to all year, really. But I'm curious. I was thinking, you know, Travis and I were talking about um, the art and the artists represented, and. We wondered if you try not to repeat artists or at least works from specific artists. Well, let me give you an example. And this one uh, is very special to me. Uh, the last sequence before the Last Supper in the show is devoted to a Native American artist named John Nieto. And his work was discovered by our director in 1985 and he convinced John to let us do some of his works. His works are, imagine the color palette of the Fauves, um, the French uh, group of artists whose love of rich, deep colors and bright colors was probably the strongest statement of their work. That It was a, a, almost a, an obsession with the power of color and that, resonated so much with John Nieto, who was was committed to doing artworks based on Native American dancers, Native American traditions and rituals and customs and costuming, uh, regalia, I should say, that 
recreated work that got me excited because it was very contemporary and modern and accessible, but at the same time, it was classical. And it was also just um, really exciting to write about an artist who inspired me to no end with his philosophy of art and life and his vision of his work and dedication and the, uh, the fact that he's painting up on top of this mountain in New Mexico, and he's um, creating these works that are just stunningly beautiful. And we, when we, in 1985, we did a completely different assortment of his works than we are showing this time, 20, 30 some years later. But the, uh, the reality of the presentation was, was a reminder to me of how much it meant to write about, uh, in 1985, a living artist who I could introduce our, our audience to and say, here's someone that I really think you should be aware of. I mean, obviously I don't say that, nor does our narrator, um, but the excitement that we were sharing by including him in the pageant of the masters is something that had real world implications and living implications, not just a celebration of uh, the long dead artists who we acknowledge in every show. But uh, in this case, it really sort of changed my attitude about what the possibilities of writing the pageant were. And I think since uh, uh, that time, and especially once Diane Chalice-Davey became director, the desire to be more proactive about finding new artists that are worthy of this kind of attention and regard. I mean, really it's, the, the art world is largely written by the patriarchy of, of modern art and ancient art. And that is a very myopic view of what was actually going on and artists who have long and largely been underrepresented or neglected or simply uh, ignored altogether. And uh, this, if this shouldn't sound like me getting on a high horse about anything. This should sound about uh, my commitment to constantly looking for, and these as well, new works that will speak to our audience and hopefully bridge that gap between what some people hearing pageant of the masters might think, oh, well, this is going to be dry and dull and an art history lecture or something. And it is so not that. It right. is about the living, breathing heart of art and artists' lives. And it's fun. It is fun. Um, does this go on anywhere else in the world, do you know? I mean, are there productions like this anywhere happening? Not at this, not at this point. I mean, there, there are little tableau vivant events but nothing that does it. Um, when I was researching and writing about the history of the organization back in 2007, one of the few books that I found about the history of Tableau Vivant in the last chapter, it said, if you want to see how Tableau Vivant is done, you have to go to Laguna Beach in the summer. <laughs> that was written 30 years ago. Okay. And it's still true. Um, there was a brief period in the 70s and 80s when uh, a group from Utah in a small town with volunteerism uh, very strong 
they came to the pageant and said, we'd like to do something like this in our high school gym in American Fork, Utah. And um, the director at that time and his designers agreed to help them out. And they tried their best to mimic what we do. And they succeeded in some ways. And they were outgrowing the gym. And they were looking for a permanent home. And it was the failure to get into a permanent home that ultimately sabotaged their attempt to do and sustain the pageant of the arts uh, in Utah. And it was, uh, it was bittersweet and it was also uh, a, an odd kind of compliment what we were doing. But uh, one of the first issues was they couldn't do it outdoors like we do because it is way too hot in American Fork, Utah in the summer to do something like this outdoors, even at night. And uh, we have the blessing here in Laguna and I, you know, pray to the climate change gods that it maintains itself. Uh, but uh, we are in a nice little pocket of stable uh, weather that literally can't be replicated even five miles in any direction. You'll get rained on or something worse uh, five miles from here at some point during the summer. And we've had a total of three nights rained out in 88 years. Mm. And I, I'm knocking wood as I say that. <laughs> well, what, talk about the Last Supper. That I, I love that it always ends on the Last Supper. And I always find it super emotional. Um, how did that come about? Well, it was that 1936 um, presentation that got all the press. And a lot of people who came in 37, 38, 39, etc., were there specifically because they had heard about that all around the country. And they wanted to see it. So it it really became entrenched even before we had the, the Irvine Bowl. The idea that the pageant ended with the Last Supper was something created by Roy and Marie Ropp. And to them, we owe this challenge that we face every year now that he has, has given us uniquely different themes every year. Finding ways to write about the pageant and tie it to the theme Sometimes it's an epilogue. Sometimes it's it's a reminder that, oh, we just woke up from a dream and here we are back in the Last Supper. Um, last, uh, in 2019, for the time machine, we the nth degree and actually had uh, a time traveler traveling back in time to the day after Leonardo died and following him in a time machine as he went in search of other inspiration and ended with a hologram of Leonardo telling people that, uh, you know, art and science uh, go hand in hand and, and it's, it's, they are both equally important, what it means to be human. And, and there's the Last Supper. Uh, probably one of my favorite guys was, was being able to tell the story of the miracle of the Last Supper during World War II when bombing was going around all over Italy and the monks in the monastery in uh, Santa Maria della Grazia were worried about Last Supper and they put sandbags around it and they put scaffolding over it 
and they just did their best to try to cover it up and protect it. And wouldn't you know it, an, uh, an erratic, uh, erratic bomb dropped by an English uh, bomber landed on the refectory and blew out three of the four walls and the only wall left standing and relatively undamaged because of the sandbags and the scaffolding was the wall with the Last Supper on it. And uh, if you were to go there today, you would see that painting on that wall, but the rest of the monastery had to be completely rebuilt. So mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's kind of miraculous and a credit to forward thinking of those monks. And it was uh, uh, a great way to end the 2014 show, The Art Detective, which had begun with the theft of great art by the Nazis during World War II. Hmm. That's a good story. I had no idea. Um, hey, I, I wasn't exactly an authority on The Last Supper <laughs> when I first came here either. And uh, it's, it's a balancing act. I, I want to write about religious art with a, you know, respect and regard for it, but with also the approaches, if possible, that will not make anyone in the audience feel excluded from appreciating Leonardo's brilliance and the history of the painting itself, but not, if they are not of the Christian persuasion, not to feel like they should be excluded from appreciating what it means to uh, its many admirers and, and at this point, what it means to the pageant of the masters. And it was a perfect ending for this year's show because of the tie-in with Matthew Ralston's uh, presentation of his amazing photographs called Art People over at the Lagoon Art Museum this summer. And those are his paintings of the 2016 pageant of members of the pageant volunteer cast in costume and makeup, but very much out of context. And mm -hmm. it's, a, I don't know if you've seen that show, but it is absolutely sort of a wonderful tie-in and a must-see if you're in Laguna for the pageant and have, a, have the time to also go to the museum. Mm -hmm. And Matthew has, you know, uh, a while to convince us that his love for the pageant was sincere and that his intentions were not in some way um, commenting on, you know, the pageant's um, earlier history of risking being kind of kitsch or that sort of thing. And we have done our level best to, you know, sort of alleviate that sense. I mean, my most cynical jaded Hollywood friends when they come to the pageant not believe that this is going on in Laguna <laughs> Beach. And, and that makes me happy because it, it makes me sad that they won't come as I drag them down here. But once they see it, I don't have to make any apologies for it because it will, will touch them in ways they never expected to be moved and it will engage and inform them and entertain them in ways that they had no right to expect. Yeah. Yeah. You really have to see it. I mean, it, 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 it may not make a lot of sense listening, but it is, you know, I mean, once you, you see have it, to see it, that is the bottom line. And, and it's also a lot of the recidivism in our audiences. There's nothing more fun than bringing someone who has never seen it and saying, no, see, see I told you, see, really right. sounds crazy. But look, isn't that cool? You know, one thing I especially love during the show is when you, 
you show behind the scenes, you know, the actors taking their positions or, or the, the curtain comes down on the orchestra and we can see what's going on in the pit. I love all that stuff. Um, and, and those are, those are all elements of theatricality that he and I both love to utilize whatever thing is correct. You know, it, we love lowering the door so that the audience can be engaged in the performance of the musicians if it is not too distracting from what's going on on stage. If it's complementary, as I think it is in our usage of it this year, uh, it draws the audience into musical experience, which then enhances the theatrical experience as well. And, and the the success in 1966 of the first builder that we call it, which we actually recreate this year with Breezing Up by Winslow Homer, which was that first builder in 1966. Don Williamson, the director at that time, had no idea what the audience would do when he said, let's open up the curtain and see how it's done. He thought maybe they would sit there and be offended that somehow he had broken a sacred trust that they would not be you know, shown how sausage is made, but instead he created one of the most popular moments in every pageant where it is now, you know, there is no such thing anymore as a pageant without some, for, some form of builder, some place where we either conceptually or just literally open up the curtain and show you how it's done. And it is like a magician saying, this is the trick I'm going to do. I'm going to show you how the trick is done and the lights are going to change. And it's still going to be a trick. Mm-hmm. And that's, that is it, pure and simple. And yet that is one of the most exciting and fun moments for audiences in every show. Yeah, I don't. I don't think I would want to see how sausages make. Even if I, even if I were a carnivore, I still don't think I would want to see it. But I love how, yeah, we get we get to peek and see how it happens. And it, I don't know. I think it it adds a dimension to then the paintings. Um, you know, that that then are being shown with the lighting and everything else because it is magical. It's, but it's also revealing the, the antique and really essential theatrical technology of it in that you're seeing these huge sets rolled into place and you're seeing that the people are suspended in these sets and you're seeing that they are moving around and they're getting into their places and uh, the, the frame is being adjusted and then the lights the final illusion, but you're being reminded that we aren't doing this with the high-tech digital technology trickery that, you know, might normally be used in movies or on television. We're doing it the old-fashioned way with hand-painted sets, hand-built costumes, everything made from scratch, everything designed with one goal, which is to create illusion of an artwork. I don't think of, you know, um, our cast members as being anything other than the, the vehicles for the illusion of the artwork, because sometimes you will have young women playing male roles 
or you will have um, children as adults uh, because of the scale of the piece. When you look at a, a masterpiece like Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, you're looking at young people because the set is so massive that the only way those people at that diner counter can fit correctly into the proper proportion is if they are 10 or 11 or 12 years old. Hmm. And But you won't know that because they've, they are looking first and foremost like paint on canvas. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that is an absurd goal, but it is a beautiful, beautiful conceit when it's done right. Hmm. And, uh, and nobody does it better than our tech wizards. And, and they are wonderful to work with. And just, you know, it's the community of volunteers and staff and everybody else that works behind the scenes at the pageant that makes this the, the theater family that first attracted me to the theater in the first place. It is a place, you were talking at the beginning about writing for writing's sake versus writing for the collaborative act of creating a theater piece. I got into playwriting through acting and directing, not through the desire to put words on paper. Words on paper was like a blueprint for a rehearsal process, a discovery process in which you work with other people and all of your creative energies come together to create a play that hopefully takes risks that you've never seen before on stage. And, and especially for me, finds laughs in some of the weirdest places. And uh, it's, it's just a gratifying adventure. And to have made that commitment to the romantic notion of devoting your life to the theater when I was still in college was um, something that I took very seriously and, and realized was a responsibility to not only my fellow theater artists, but also to um, being a, an adult and a responsible member of a community. And in this case, the pageant community has become a new home for me for 40 years that uh, I can't not be emotional about. Mm. You know, I don't think I knew you came to uh, playwriting through acting. I don't know if I knew that. No, it's because I'm so humble. <laughs> <laughs> that must be it. That's um, interesting. I still have my sag and after cards. I still, uh, I, I believe in acting because that is where the word play comes from and why it is so much fun. There is nothing more freeing and fun than being an actor being told what to do and what to say and then being utterly free on that stage to give birth and be someone else. That to me is, is, is just great fun. And I like to share that fun now, mostly by writing roles for actors who I admire and actresses who I would love to work with um, because I know that they enjoy it for the same reasons that I do. And, or at least I want to romantically believe that. It is a tremendously romantic um, notion in the first place. Uh, as I say about Joe and Edward Hopper, they were old enough to know better, but they still uh, hung together. And uh, I feel the same way about theater. I'm old enough to know better, but I, even in my moments of self-doubt about, well, should I be doing something else? Should I be writing novels? Should I be writing um something else the <laughs> the bottom line is 
Um, this is where my heart is, and this is where I hang my hat. And and if I get the opportunity to work in other mediums, I love it. But um, at the end of the day, the uh, the thing that's closest to my soul is my work in the theater. Yeah. Uh, we have just a few minutes left. Wow. Um, I know, I know. It went fast. And I've been with Dan Dooling. He's the scriptwriter for Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach. Um, do you have next year's show um, sketched out already? We normally would have, but because of COVID, um, we really had to focus all of our attention when we got back. We were just trying to get the show completed and ready for audiences. And that took everything that everybody had and uh, a lot of creative ingenuity on top of everything else that was going on. And uh, I think because of the uncertainties about where our pandemic might go next, uh, there is a certain reluctance to make grand statements about next year. But mm -hmm. I know that uh, our director who ultimately selects the theme for each year uh, is considering a lot of great ideas. And um, when she's ready to announce it, she will announce it. And uh, no one will be happier than me to get started on collecting ideas. We'll have budgetary limitations next year that will uh, probably mean um, or may impact how we approach that show. Uh, but I really don't know what the theme will be. And uh, we'll just have to wait. And, and uh, in the meantime, I just hope that people will realize, hey, the pageant is going on. It's there are seats available. It is a fun night. And if you've heard that it sounds ridiculous, see for yourself. There, the, everyone that's seen it will tell you you have to see it uh, in order to appreciate just how unusual it is. And the best thing about it is the success of the pageant makes possible the Festival of Arts and its juried art, art show for showcasing local artists and their works and really giving them a leg up in the art world by being able to sell their work, meet their new patrons, make new connections, and um, you know not be beholden to managers, agents, or galleries. Mm. Get what they get to keep what they what they sell and uh, the you know what they make from what they sell, and it's it's a wonderful juried art show, and there's some wonderful work there, and the festival. Um, and pageant are all technically owned entirely by the city of Laguna Beach. So there is a tremendous payback to the city of Laguna Beach as well. And uh, yeah, I love wandering around the festival. Um, my co-host, Marie Stone, her husband, Jeff Rovner, has um, his art hanging and uh, his photographic art. And it's right. Yeah, and and you know I discovered another artist, Bruce Burr, um, this last time who who does wonderful uh, work with uh, photographs and noir, which is right up my alley as well. Um, so yeah, yes. it's a whole yes, you can give yourself a plug. We that's how <laughs> we sort of first met was on Orange County Noir. So. Orange County Noir. So 
Yeah, I was going to say we met through Orange County Noir, which Akashic published in 2010, where we both have short stories. And I wanted to ask you about fiction and if you do much with fiction at all. I had a lot of fun with that. I enjoy, um, I have many writer friends whose lives do nothing to encourage me to want to become a uh, novelist or a short story writer because they live hand to mouth and hopefully married well. Um, and, and that said, I did on one of my writer's retreats, um, which I haven't done in a few years now, but uh, I went up to the Whiteley Center on San Juan Island and said, okay, this is my challenge. I'm going to see if I really have what it takes write a novel. And I had the materials to, uh, of the sort of the beginnings of a novel to take up there with me. And uh, it was one of those periods where you say, I'm still a playwright? <laughs> what kind of sense does that make? It's like the question where someone, the follow-up question is always, no, but what do you really do? Um, but I went up there and I said, let's, let's call that bluff. And I learned something very important. I learned that I am in my bones a playwright, and I am a member of the theater community uh, who doesn't want to give up any of those opportunities because I grew up in so much isolation that I just really love the notion of community and nothing says community to me like the amazing extended family of the pageant of the masters. Well, that's interesting how sort of our I don't know whether it's our family of origin or how we grow up, how that determines what we end up doing. And, and I'm curious about growing up in isolation. Where did you grow up and what happened? <laughs> I, I'm surprised we haven't had this conversation before, but uh, I grew up on a, a ranch in central Oregon where the nearest neighbor was six miles away. The nearest paved road was six miles away. And you had to go down in a canyon and up on the other side to get the mailbox and <laughs> the, um, the town of 310 people where I went to school until I graduated from high school was a mill town and surrounded by family farms. And I was to be polite, miscast as a farm boy for 18 years. And everybody knew it fairly early on that I was just not wired for the stoicism of waiting for the rain to save the crops, to have a have a, a, a paycheck at the end of the year. It was just a different world. And I could not wait to believe in the possibility of a world where I wouldn't feel quite so um, isolated and alien. But it was where my parents wanted to be. It was everything they'd always wanted, a farm way out in the middle of nowhere, where they could be their own bosses and be left alone. And then they had a, a, a bonus child after the three normal kids had grown up. And they left me to play out there on the rim rocks and crawl into the uh, crevices and roll rocks down on the railroad tracks. And it's a miracle that I didn't end up killing myself 10 times over out there. <laughs> so I take it, I mean, you have a PhD in drama from... Uh, <laughs> University of Texas, Austin, but where did you go for a BA? I went to Oregon State because my brother went to Oregon State and because in a town of 300 people and 40 in my graduating class, there was no assistance of any kind or guidance as to what one should do after high school. And so I went there 
really because I didn't really have any clue what other options were available to me. And from there, going to the University of Kansas was an odd choice, but it was recommended by a, one of the faculty at Oregon State. And he gave he introduced me to the best playwriting instructor I ever had. And the tools that he gave me allowed me to teach at the University of Texas while I was there. And then the University of Texas was a logical one because it was one of three schools in the nation with the writing PhD in writing and criticism. And it also had in a separate department, radio, television, film department, every toy you could ever imagine for me to play in both worlds and refuse to be pigeonholed as just one of those theater types. So I, I straddled those two worlds throughout graduate school and just enjoyed every minute of it while putting off the choice between New York and Los Angeles. And I chose Los Angeles and I have never regretted it. This is where I feel more at home than ever in any place else ever. So did you go straight from there to a PhD program or is there a master's in between? The master's was at University of Kansas. That was the master's in playwriting. And then the PhD was because University of Texas also had an equity showcase out of New York for playwriting in the summers that where it was cast and direct, the director was chosen and, and the cast was chosen in New York. And then they came to Austin and performed at the University of Texas. And I was the first non-New York playwright to have a play selected for that. So that was kind of the carrot got me there. And then um, I was just very fortunate to work with a bunch of extraordinary people and incredibly talented uh, artists, designers, actors, and um, directors. And then Half of them went to New York and half of them came out here to LA. And I came out with the gang that went, came to LA. We started a theater company for a couple of years and did a couple of my plays. Uh, I wrote for the weekly, I wrote for the Herald Examiner and then did pieces for the Times. And I was just, you know, having a great time and somehow getting paid to act, write and, um, occasionally to work on projects for other media that uh, felt like a career to me. Was it, was it a giant quick payoff? Not at all. It was, uh, there were very lean years and there were challenging uh, circumstances. And at the same time, I uh, was just engaged with the creative community of Los Angeles in a way that uh, felt so much more comfortable and I felt more at home here than I ever did in New York. And then you got a call from the patron of the masters. <laughs> I did. And it was, it happened to be the year that I was about to become a father for the first time. So it was kind of an interesting coincidence and uh, um, it probably helped it when he said, well, come down and see a rehearsal and see what you think. So I was, was uh, not playing hard to get. I was just having a hard time taking it seriously as he was describing it. But when I walked into the Irvine Bowl and I saw how beautiful this setting was and how really powerful the presentations on the stage were, admittedly of a conceit that I did not take seriously and still on some level don't, 
I think one of the mantras that B and I go by is we take art very seriously. We do not take ourselves terribly seriously, but we do what we do as dedicatedly as possible because in the long run, if we encourage one kid to get excited about art or one husband to realize that what he was dragged to is actually kind of entertaining or one uh, uh, visitor from out of town to want to come back to see Laguna and bring back someone else to see the show, then we perpetuate something that's larger than all of us. And um, I would simply say that that year when I was about to become a dad and wrote the first pageant that I um, had the opportunity to write, um, gave me the opportunity back many years later in 2009 to write the script for The Muse, which was about women in art and women artists. And that show still chokes me up because it felt like I was writing a show for my daughters. Well, this is a, a lovely uh, note to end on. It's, uh, I've, learned <laughs> things, I've learned things about you I didn't know, and that's always a wonderful thing. You're just not very curious. That's all there is to it, Barbara. <laughs> <laughs> we just talk about everything else. I don't that's know. That's right. That's right. You just, <laughs> you just had to pry it out of me. I, I confess. I confess. <laughs> oh, Dan, thank you so much for taking the time. It, it's been great. and, and It's I look always a pleasure. You, you have the ways of drawing confessions out of me that I never expected. <laughs> Oh, and next year, I will uh, hope and pray that the pageant takes place and that whatever we're going through with the pandemic. Let's be knocking wood, yes. Get her away. I'm going to knock laminate right now and I'll look, <laughs> <laughs> I'll look for wood. Uh, anyway, thank you so much, Dan. Hey, and that was fun. You've been listening to Writers on Writing on 88.9 KUCI FM. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett, and uh, that was Dan Dooling, his. He's done so much, and the main thing we were talking about was Pageant of the Masters in Laguna Beach, which you can Google if you want to find out more, and if you're in Orange County, California, um, treat yourself and and see a wonderful, wonderful show. And on Through September 3rd, every night. September 3rd, so a month from now, so there's time. In any case, we'll be back here next week. Thank you so much for listening. 